Today's guest is Rachel Newman, an uber-impressive high flyer who has experienced countless successes around the globe in the ever-changing, complex and exciting world of venture capital investment. But business wasn't really the focus of our fabulous and high-octane chat with Rachel. Instead of deep-diving her latest hot startup deal, Rachel actually shared some of the formative experiences that have shaped the inner narrative which has fueled her fierce drive and ambition based on growth and acquisition, and that this has often come at the cost of her being able to experience fun, levity and real human joy. Rachel also shares the painful story of her brother's sudden death, aged just 21, which she internalised and has over time prevented her recognising and prioritising her own suffering, hurts and emotional wounds. There's so much in this conversation that we can all learn from, but at its very core, it's a powerful toolkit of advice for everyone about how to give yourself permission, time and space to be who you are and not continue to be complicit in the conditions you create for yourself. The takeaway message here is to believe that we are worthy of choosing ourselves over and over and over again, which we all acknowledge is a work in progress. Here's our chat with Rachel. So, Rachel, welcome to the Human Cogs podcast. We're pretty excited to have you here across oceans and time zones today. Uh, we're in deep, hard lockdown in Melbourne and you are on the sunny shores of uh, Tiburon in San Francisco. We thought, because we're trying to meet each other across time and through light and dark, that we would warm us up, the three of us in this conversation, with a little bit of rapid fire questioning. So just like a few questions just to get your brain spiking. So are you ready? Born ready, Mads. All right. Who are you in the world of biscuits and why? Oh, I'm an Oreo girl. Absolutely. And here in America, I, I don't want to admit this, but I'm actually a double stuff Oreo, which is double the cream because you can never have too much of a good thing. Love it. Okay. If you were a color, what would you be and why? Oh, I mean, my fr- what came to me initially is black because I'm Melbourne through and through and I don't think I have any color in my entire wardrobe. So, um, I'll, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to say black because it's like not really a color. It's a shade and black can go in lots of different directions. What do you generally try to avoid in your life? Uh, it used to be people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was more of a COVID safe method. What do I like to avoid? Uh, negativity. I think that it doesn't do anyone any good and it is contagious. And I have to admit, like sometimes I'm prone to catching that contagion. And on the other hand, I am very easily swayed to be happy when I'm surrounded by happy people. So yeah, avoid negativity. Mm -hmm. What can make you really difficult to live with? Oh, I have a pretty high bar for things, whether it's, you know, performance of a founder, expectations of myself or stacking the dishwasher. And so I don't know if you know this, but there actually is a right way to do everything. And I'm just lucky in that I know that right way. Um, And I make sure that everyone in my family is aware of the right way to do things. Wow, you sound like an absolute nightmare to live with. Um, <laughs> we can unpack. We can unpack that later. Here's my final warm-up question, Rach. I, I was just going to give you an anecdote, Mads. I um, have told my partner, you know, it's not worth doing if it if you don't do it well. And I'm like referring to like 
making the bed. Um, so yeah, it can get pretty <laughs> intense over domestic tasks. Wow. Have you created playbooks around the house, um, sort of manuals for... Oh, yes. Say, repeatable. Re- repeatable yeah, models. Repeatable, scalable. I love it. Sounds like you. Flywheels for the domestic fold. Uh, all right. Final question. Complete this sentence without thinking about it too much. In order to really understand me, you have to know that... I'm from New York. <laughs> okay. Oh, All right. Well, it. from the rapid fire, um, I think we need to unpack some of the rapid fire responses. So, first of all, you want to avoid negativity, Rach. Is there a story there for you from your childhood, from your family of origin around negativity? Well, you know what? I actually think it goes hand in hand with that last question around to understand me. Uh, is to know that I'm from New York. I think that New York is a very intense place. And I was actually just there last week, which is like a humble brag or subtle flex because I am actually traveling right now. But I was just reminded when I'm there that like everyone like is so intense and is like on a mission for something. And like most of the time, it's like not even a real mission. They just have to have one and they have to, you know, have their elbows out and their head down and charge at everything. And so I actually, I'm very fortunate. I was born into a very loving um, family, but my family also are New Yorkers and they were super intense. And there was a lot of, I don't, I don't want to say negativity, but there was a very high bar that was put on me and everyone around us. There was a family saying, which is be worthy of your name, which is like outrageous. Um, but it means like live up to our ex- our insane expectations of you. I think New Yorkers are prone to like complaining about everything. And I find myself in New York, the conversation around the diner table while eating coleslaw is complaining. Like it's a, it's a scene straight out of, you know, curb your enthusiasm. And it's very easy to get into this habit of talking negatively or talking about people as though that's interesting content. I'd much rather talk about ideas. And just in contrast, in the four days now that I've been back in the San Francisco Bay Area, every conversation I've had has been about like big ideas and opportunity and optimism. There hasn't been any complaining. And I can feel my shoulders drop, the weight lift, and like there is a lightness to me just by being in this environment. Mm. And how would you know if you were worthy of your name when you were a child or an adult? Oh, God. Well, I think when I was young, it was like a pretty narrow definition, which is be a doctor. Um, so my grandfather's so you're not a doctor. Worthy. No, I'm not. So my grandfather's a doctor. My dad is a doctor. My uncles are doctors. The cousins who are worthy are doctors. Um, and I am not. And, you know, every once in a while, I actually, when I feel like insecure, like unmoored in my life, I'm like, oh, should I go be a doctor? Like it's still so deeply ingrained. Um, but I guess the real answer is, I don't know if I ever felt like I was worthy, uh, even though I was a really like high achieving young person. I you know, graduated top of my class in high school. I got a sports scholarship to Stanford. I graduated early. Like I, have, I got two master's degrees in the time that most people get one. And um, I don't know. I don't know if I ever, to be honest, like really feel, especially like there are certain family members. I don't know if I have to, you know, lay down on a couch, tell you the rest of the story. But I think there are certain family members for whom, like, I don't know if I um, am good enough. And that's probably been part of my, like, the chip on my shoulder that's gotten me to drive 
in cert- at certain speeds and in certain directions. How, how will you know when you have done enough, like if you've got this very strong drive both from New York, from your family of origin, about having to be worthy and do more and be intense, at which point can you settle and say that's enough for today or this week? I have to be like this is something I work very intensely with my coach on. So um, I don't have a therapist, but I have like an, a, a washed up athlete's version of a therapist, which is to have a, you know, a, a coach, a leadership coach. Um, and he's been amazing for me. You know, he has these lines that I find him using over and over, either because they're his taglines or because I'm just not getting it. <laughs> but it's all about, he's like, give yourself permission to be who you are. Um, he always, you know, he hears in subtle ways in my language where I am very judgmental of myself. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll say it, you know, in jest, but he's like, you know, joking aside, like you are like, there are just these subtle little language cues that you are having extreme judgment on yourself and you're not giving your, yourself permission to just be. And so um, it's a lifelong thing. But I think that over my kind of adult life, I am definitely moving from being extrinsically motivated to be intrinsically motivated. I, you know, am giving myself permission to be who I am. And it, it's not that I care less about some of these people, but I think you get to a certain point where you realize like they don't really deeply understand you. So therefore they can never give you the validation you want to need. It'll just never come. And so I think I like stopped waiting for like the greatest daughter mug to arrive in the mail. And once I know that that mug's not going to come, it's actually given me a lot of freedom to just like actually be who I am. Those mugs are overrated anyway. I've got a bunch of those. Best mother, whatever. They've got chips in them and they're stained. There's, um, Rach, as you talk, there's, um, there's someone that's come to mind. Have you read much of Jerry Colonna? Uh, he's written quite a few books called Reboot and others about this idea of intrinsic, extrinsic relationships. Um, and he, he has a line in his book and he says, how am I complicit in the conditions I create for myself? Man, that just hit. Um, I had, again, a coach. I, I've, I always have a coach. Um, and actually this coach is in the Bay Area and we're going to reconnect. And I remember a few years ago, and this was when I was managing director of Eventbrite. And I was complaining about some of my, this one team member and her performance. And she said, you know, it must be really hard to work for you, but I bet it's even harder to be you. She reported to you and she was able to express that to you. Oh no, this was my coach playing back to this story. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, And I remember when, you know, when she said that and it kind of like took the air out of the room for a second. And I was like, you're so right. Because for all the judgment that I have, it's coming from a place of me judging myself. Um, and, you know, when I get frustrated with people or when I hold them to unrealistic expectations, it's a manifestation of what I don't like about myself or, you know, these ruthless demands I have on myself. And so I think that, like, that's really aligned to that line you said, Mads, around being complicit with these these motivations. Um, it's something that I, I'm working on. And someone also told me once, don't, if, if you keep holding, like, there are certain things that we all, we all have excellence, right? There are certain things that we're all excellent in. And someone pointed out, you're holding someone up against your excellence bar. And so they're always going to fail. 
So why don't you instead hold them up against their excellence bars? And so like these are the things that I'm trying to mature into as I continue to, you know, be a leader, work with founders, work with investors. Like the truth is when I get better at this, when I see myself in actual behaviors being better, I'm just having more fun too. Like it is more fun to not be judgmental. It is more fun to not think that everyone is shit at their job. It is much more fun to celebrate when people are great. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for those moments more often. What are some of the intrinsic drivers that you feel you're moving towards? Um, I, I think I've realized, you know, when my coach tells me give myself permission, like I, I think that um, I want to have fun more than I used to let myself, like before it was all about performance and growth and acquisition, whether that's like acquiring money or land grabs in business or, you know, leading teams. Like it was very uh, aggressive and acquisitory. And, um, and, and you know what? I have to be honest, like maybe it's because I have had success there that I have like both the permission or I've given myself the permission or like I have the privilege to step back and say like, I just want like some levity and joy. I really want to do things where, yes, I'm having an impact. Yes, I'm intellectually and emotionally challenged, but also I'm having fun doing it. I really, I really want to have fun. I think that I traded off a lot of fun in the last decade in exchange for conquering. Mm. And um, it left me like exhausted, depleted, and with lots of good things. But now I, I really want to shift and um, I'm very much motivated by some like levity and joy, which I recognize like I just want like big asterisks. Like that's a very privileged position to be in that I'm able to optimize for levity and joy. Not many people get to say that. Be- because you've been there, done that, conquered, gone hard, taken yourself well to the edge, probably not the edge of your potential, I imagine. There's a lot more in there. But like like on a good day now, when you are more conscious of, all right, I want levity, I want joy, I, I want some less intensity in this thing. What are you legitimately proud of about yourself on a good day now? Well, I think I used to measure success by like how many back-to-back meetings I had or how many like big wins I had. And you know, now when I look at my calendar and I have time, like time and space, that feels like success to me. You know, yesterday I dropped the kids off at school and I went for a hike locally by myself with a podcast in my ear. And I spent an hour walking amongst the trees. And I just thought I could not be more successful in this moment to have mm. given myself this space and time and told myself that I was worth it. Because this is another thing that, I mean, if we're going to go there, let's go there. But I think I have some like worthy issues. So, um, you know, like there have been times in the past, this is pre-pandemic where like I'm exhausted and I want to, let's just say, take myself to the movies. And then I'm like, well, you know, and this is, you know, my partner's traveling. So it's going to be a babysitter and that's going to cost like $60 plus the movie ticket. Like, oh, that's not worth it. And so what I always had forgotten to do in my little calculus of worth it was I never had a variable that represented me and like what I need, whether that is I needed joy or I needed a break or I needed a moment to escape whatever I'm doing that never went into the equation. So it was always a very much like money in, money out equation. And so when I take an hour to walk in the trees like I did yesterday, I feel proud that in that moment, 
where I could have gone grocery shopping. I could have responded to three emails, one of which is yours, Mads. I could have, you know, written a deal memo. Instead, I've placed value on that hour in the trees. And that's something that I would have not done in the past and I still struggle with. But I, I'm proud that I, that I like assigned value to that and I, I invested in myself. Are you comfortable sitting in yourself in that moment? Yes, I, I did. You know, there, that also has taken time because like, you know, there are times where I go on the hike, but like my phone is out and I'm texting my business partner, Kylie, or I have ideas and I'm like Googling them. And so yesterday, again, I just put a podcast on. The phone was in the pocket. It did not come out. And I really gave myself that time to hang with my friend Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach on uh, We Can Do Hard Things. And yeah, I didn't feel bad about it. I felt great. Mm-hmm. I think we need to challenge the idea that you have to have reached um, sort of heady heights of success in order to be deserving of joy. I think that's um, everyone's uh, deserving of, of joy. I think that's a really good point. And, and I... I don't want it to come across like I have achieved professional financial success and so now I can relax because, you know, there's like that old adage about like that man who meets a fisherman who's just like hanging in the sun. Do you know, do you guys know this story? It's like someone sitting in the sun and just hanging out in this, um, you know, professional guy said, oh, you know, I worked my butt off and I did this and this and this so that I can sit in the sun and enjoy, right? That's a very bad telling of the story, but I am often reminded that I have very much deferred joy in my life, believing that it's on the other side of this thing. I realize now that one, like you should always make time for it because you actually never know if you're going to get around the bend to that other thing. And even in my case where I managed to get around the bend, I'm fucking exhausted and depleted Mm -hmm. and if I had the chance to go back, I would have gone a little bit slower and made that you know, path to success a little bit kind of longer and stretched out in exchange for some levity and joy. Did you call yourself out on that? Or, I mean, you've been in a long-term relationship, yeah? So as you've gone through this high velocity and, and going hard and you've had to carry a partnership and, and kids through that, uh, how, did, how did that go? As it was actually the 10 year anniversary just two days ago, but I had my youngest brother die 10 years ago. Um, he was 21 and he was on his university campus and got hit by a car and just died like boom out of nowhere. And it's funny because that it's not, not funny, but um, haha, I, I think moments like that bring lots of things into focus, right? Like you don't know if you're going to get around the corner, you can't take things for granted. Um, and so I thought actually that was going to be a really life-changing event. What's interesting is that the most intense period of my time of my life actually has been the last 10 years. And so the big ahas that I've had didn't come from his death, but it has been, I think, only now, 10 years later, where I've looked back and I thought like, have you learned nothing? And why haven't you taken these lessons to heart? Especially now, as you mentioned, I have, you know, two beautiful kids and I have a wonderful wife. And um, it's really only been in the last year that I'm thinking more thoughtfully about my brother's death. I probably have a delayed grieving process that would be very on brand for me, but trying to take 
the lessons from that. I would, I would love to sit here and be like, 10 years ago, my brother died and it was a pivotal, life-changing moment and I've never been the same. But the truth is, I like forgot to learn that lesson. And it was as we were approaching, it was actually started last year when it was like the ninth year of his death and then um, where he would have been, turned 30. And thinking about my brother would have turned 30 and that he's not, that was when all of a sudden this introspection started. And um, I'm glad it's it's never too late to put a lesson to work, but mm-hmm. it was nine years later. <laughs> and and the teacher comes when the student is ready, and something mm. in the in those nine years, the student wasn't ready. Mm. Thank you, thank you for <laughs> cutting me some slack there. <laughs> well, that's for you to do, isn't it? That in part of this conversation is what I'm hearing really loudly is hard for you to do that for yourself, to cut mm. yourself some slack. You know, and, and in the work. I think also something happens that when a child dies, you know, the siblings, you, you don't fill a hole. Like certain expectations are now that used to be shared across four children are now shared across three. So there, I think, is like a little bit of extra expectation. And there are, I don't want to say our parents are more fragile, but they are actually. And so just you handle your life with a slightly different amount of care for those for whom already you were trying to please. You have, I think, a little bit additional burden to shoulder. And it's actually been in this last year where I've had to reconcile those things. So it's like, how do I take care of my parents who have had an unspeakable thing happen? But how do I also take care of myself, an adult who is also a parent and a partner and a human who deserves to take care of myself as well? Do you think as much as you can um, think back to it, that if that's 10 years ago, was there a point at which that catalyzed you having to be okay because your brother had died and so compared to that, you know, your worries were, were nothing or whatever? Do you think it's sort of there, were, there was some sort of switch point that you can look back, back on and say maybe this, this was a forcing mechanism for you to go harder, achieve and make the most, you know, carpe diem because he was gone? Um. Maybe. I think what it, it just made everything else inconsequential when actually things were consequential. So if I wasn't dead, then I wasn't able to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you some examples, right? Like I, a year after my brother died, I was working for Bain at the time. And I remember I was practicing the lift to go get a coffee. And I was just like in debilitating pain. Um, we found out like I could barely walk and um, I, my colleague walked me to a GP down in Collins Street and turned out I had, had kidney stones and I was in horrific pain. And, you know, I was in hospital for a day and like I was on the computer the whole time. And the next day I was back in the office because like kidney stones is not death. And so you kind of get back to work. Likewise, I was, I got the managing director job, that, that promotion within Eventbrite when I was seven months pregnant. I ended up having my daughter um, just a month later, a bit early. And then this is kind of gory, but two days after I gave birth, my cesarean wound completely opened out and my intestines ended up in my lap. What? Was it just bad, bad stitching? What's... <laughs> well, I will not, uh, in, you know... Defame your surgeon. <laughs> Defame my uh, OB guy. Um, but 
yes, I, I was in the shower. There was a tiny separation. They were going to come back and stereo strip it. I looked down and there was bowel on view. Um, oh anyway, God. the point is, is that shortly after my colorectal surgery to return my bowel to the internal locations of my body, um, I was on phone calls. I never took maternity leave. And I've never just given myself permission to be injured, to be hurt, to be sick. Um, I don't know if I've ever really taken a sick day. I jokingly told my partner when I got the COVID vaccine, two days before my jab, I said, I can already tell I'm going to need two days in bed. Um, so already I'm changing. I'm preempting that I want some days off. But I think that when you have a death or a loss, all of a sudden, any bruise or bump or kidney stone or bowel on view becomes inconsequential. And so I think if anything, I have forgotten to give myself permission to have anything that matters that's not life or death. Mm, you've perpetually triaged yourself to the bottom of triage. Mm. And, and that assumes we can rank suffering. Mm. Well, and I, we do this right now. I just had a walk with a friend today around Oakland and I was telling her about moments in Melbourne lockdown where I felt so full of despair and anxiety and pain. And then quickly I asterisked, I said, but I have like, who am I, who am I to say I have unbelievable privilege and I have this farm and this family and an income. And, and she said, it is okay. You don't have to you can still suffer and have those things, right? Because mm -hmm. I always want to put an asterisk on my pain and say, but, it, but I'm still so lucky and it's not as bad as everyone else. And so that, that's a work in progress too. And you know that a lot of the themes that you're sharing, Rach, will be so familiar to every single listener and you, you share them so eloquently and so honestly. And the same story is coming up for me when you, when you talked about joy. You said, but I, I know that I'm... I'm privileged to be able to to ask for joy, mm. as if you had to apologise for that as well. Mm. Yeah, this is more more than you bargained for when you signed up for this. We haven't even talked yes. about your your work. Can I please? Can I please? Please, can I tell you about my fund? Anything that's numbers. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, actually, right. I, I do have a, something I want to tap into. So you and I have known each other for a bit and, and full disclosure, I invest with, with you in, in your fund. We also had the good fortune of working together in Telstra Labs some years ago in the innovation team. So I've seen your skills, knowledge, leadership, close up, close hand. Like uh, I, I get what you look like out in that world of business, that, that high velocity, hard ass I'm going to call you but it's got soft edges around it and um, you're formidable and you're a force and you're a really big talent and I would like to know personally do you do you have a sort of a personal agenda or, or can you talk to um, your position on other females in leadership roles and in business because obviously we've got pretty shit numbers around the world still, particularly in the venture world that you're in. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with diversity, inclusion and, and females in leadership. Yeah. Um, God, we're just, uh, we are so far off from where we need to be. So, I mean, there are so many levels on which I can answer this question and there's so much data that I can provide that backs it up, but I'll just, for your listeners' sake, not bore them with that. But women make up half the population. And so the underrepresentation of women in certain domains, it is just so, for a gap to be that big, 
it is not a mistake. It is a power structure that has been in place for over a century to keep women uh, in a certain domain so that they are not threatening to men. And it was exacerbated in the Industrial Revolution when we needed men to work in factories. And so we created these myths that women are more domestically skilled so that we could keep them at home so we can put our men to work. And so like, the un unfortunate thing is when you start peeling this onion and you see how far back it runs and how systematic it was and how structural it continues to be, you end up very angry. And I'll be honest, like there are moments still where I'm just so angry that this is how the, the walls of the structures are so cemented and solidified and just knowing how much work we have to do. Now, the, the data uh, as to why we should fix it is unbelievably compelling, right? We know that, and I'll just stay in the domain in which I work, but we know that, you know, investment teams that have diverse decision makers, like this study was specifically about women, get better returns from their investment decisions. We know that founders or startups that have that are founded by at least one woman outperform those with men. Um, we know that uh, ASX-listed companies with an overrepresentation of women on their board outperform those who don't, right? Like they're just, the data is all there. And so it is just so unbelievable to me that we're still not seeing the seismic shifts that need to be, that need to be seen. I also am personally passionate about getting more women to become investors, because if we think about, um, I, I am very bullish, I believe, and I'm not here to offer financial advice to anyone, but I do believe that the asset class of investing in startups is one that can unlock substantial wealth if done well. And so if we continue to only have men invest in that asset class, we're going to continue to to widen the gap between who has access to wealth. Also, women, women invest in problems that they feel and see in ways that men do not. Of course. Well, women, women just have different networks. They see problems. And we know like consumers are largely women. Decision makers amongst consumers are women. And so women who understand that can have customer empathy, can see these problems, have networks of founders who are solving those problems, like all of it, all of it. But also I'm just personally passionate about making, like we know already there is this income gap between men and women. We know that there's a superannuation gap. We know that recently divorced women in their 50s and 60s is the fastest growing demographic of homelessness. And so if we want to move the needle on this, we need to have equal access to the asset class that I believe will be the largest wealth generation and wealth creator in Australia in the next 10 years. So, I mean, Mads, you know, at Flying Fox, you know, I think more than 40%, actually, I think this cohort is 40 or 50% of our investors are women. Um, more than half of the founders that or founding teams we invest in have at least one female founder. Um, this is not uh, a social feel-good thing. This is um, an absolute business decision that needs to be made. And we're just lucky in that it has incredible social implications as well. So, um, yeah, I, I can Rachel. talk all, all hour on this. Yeah, I know this, this is your sweet spot and two things are coming up for me. One is... For, for female listeners who have never invested, who, who think that's out of reach or that you need to have big pots of money in order to do that, what's some of the things that you would advise for first steps to dip your toe in the water? Mm. 
one, just get started. There are lots of, um, there are books that you can read. Like, yeah. So if we're just talking about startups, like Venture Deals by Brad Feld, who I know was a guest on your show, um, Angel by Jason Calacanis. Those are just, you know, that's a $20 investment in you learning as much as you can. They both have podcasts that you can learn from as well. Um, there's the Five Minute VC. Like, there are just lots of free resources that you can tap into. Um, if you want to invest a little bit more in your learning, there's the VC Catalyst program that I teach that Mads participated in at the Wade Institute. Um, but also, the, so unfortunately in Australia, we have this distinction between a sophisticated investor, and I'm doing air quotes, and a retail investor. And unfortunately, that sophistication is actually just means rich. So that means that you have an income above 250K per annum or you have assets that are over 2 million. Um, and that allows you to invest in a certain class of uh, investment schemes versus not. So if you don't fall into that bucket, there are still ways to invest in startups in retail investment through things like Venture Crowd and Virtual. These are platforms that you can actually invest directly in companies. Um, you get equity. Uh, and you don't have to have that sophisticated uh, designation by your accountant. If you or your family situation, you can you can qualify as sophisticated, then that unlocks a whole number of different opportunities. The one thing that I, I just say, and again, I'm not giving financial advice, but my view of uh, investing is that it's not the quantum of capital that you deploy that drives returns. It's the number of investments that you make. Just like... Um, you know, if you use a sports analogy, and I'm in America, so let's say baseball, uh, your chances of success are the number of at-bats that you have. You just keep swinging, keep swinging, eventually you'll get a home run. Um, if you just have one at-bat, it's a very low probability that's going to turn into a home run. So um, mm -hmm. the one so thing that I tell people is just how much you have to deploy, just break that down into many, many little chunks and then spread it out, get a portfolio going. Portfolio theory, yeah, distributing re risk or distributing bets across many, many times, hoping one will be a, a winning horse. That's right. One of them that you, uh, one of your winning horses or your bets um, <laughs> is libido and gear shift <laughs> that you invested in. But I have to tell this story because this is how Rach and I met. Um, we have a mutual friend. The mutual friend says, I'm going to bring Rach to the walk. So the three of us end up going on a walk. We don't know each other. And how does the walk end? Maybe you can tell the story, Rach. <laughs> So I am a proud investor in a company called Libido, which is a sexual health and wellness company, um, which is a very important component of mental and physical health is our sexual health. And we, for some reason, well, I know why, because we have a puritanical society. We have uh, put sexual health outside the realm of what is just in health. Um, but I am an investor in this company. Part of sexual health for women uh, is orgasm. And so we have a vibrator that um, in it, you know, I think brings incredible orgasms to lots of people, whether that's women, men, non-binary, anyone in between, solo, partnered, you name it, it. We seem to work for all of you. Everyone is winning when they have a libido essentials vibe. Um, it's a sure bet. Yes. And for those who have never had a vibrator, this is a very unintimidating one. It's very beautiful. It's very sculptural. Sabina told me she, you know, she calls her the avocado. It looks like a half avocado. It can sit on your bedside table. Your kids can find it. They'll have no idea what it is. And I know that because my kids have found it while on a Zoom call, placed it on my shoulder and <laughs> no one was any the wiser. I have bought one of those as well. And it charges in a USB. So this vibrator 
L, what's it called? Right, what's the four-letter acronym? LB... Libido. Libido. Sorry. Okay. I'm quite slow. I'm not, I'm actually barely literate. And um, so I had this thing charging next to my computer on my desk, thankfully out of sight of of Zoom and business calls, but it charges with a USB. And when my daughter came in, uh, she said, what's that? And I said, that's my computer mouse. Yeah, but kind of wasted opportunity here, or depending on the age of your She's child, 12. I guess. But yeah, yeah, okay, okay. At some point, though, when you know, I, I often think when we're talking about um, sex to to our children, it's we need to talk about it before it becomes a loaded topic for them. So um, you know, if you start talking to your fifteen year old, they put their hands over their ears and saying, well, "I'm not having this conversation mm. about orgasms with you now, mum." But when you talk to a ten year old and you talk about self pleasure and sexual expression, and they probably go, oh, "Okay, pass the milk and on with the show," because it's not as so. That's how we start to embed, pardon the pun, <laughs> the um, <laughs> to normalize it. Yeah. Yeah. And and Sabina, to your point, I think we talk about sex with young kids um, functionally as this is how babies are made, but actually sex very rarely results in a baby. It usually is happening much more frequently and it's resulting in an orgasm or not an orgasm, but it's usually done for for fun or for pleasure. Um, And we forget to tell our kids about that. And so that is also, yeah, I I don't know when I'm going to tell my six-year-old who often finds the libido exactly what it is. Right now she knows it's a massager. We will, I'll let you know when we, when, when, when we are scaffolding that learning. But anyway, back to the story. We were talking about vibrators. I, I was telling you about my fabulous product. And um, our walk did end with a, a drive-by, driveway purchase. So Sabina was so... <laughs> So intrigued by my sales pitch. And hot it up, pretty hot as well. That she drove by my house and we had a socially distant contactless payment in the window of your car exchange of, of goods. I've got, I have got a good photo. It was kind of like a drug deal. We'd never met. We'd been on this walk. We'd talked about, you know, every topic under the sun. And then I'd say, well, I think I need one. And Rachel go, yeah, yeah, you can get that online. Or this is how you, you know, check, look at libido. And I said, no, 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 I need to get one now. Where do you live? Oh, you're near my house. Okay, so I'll just do a drive-by. So I went for yeah. a walk, came home with an avocado and, and then have since said to you, Rach, I think I could become your influencer in the libido world because I have um, spruiked its benefits on random group Zooms to people who I didn't even really know. So you there's are a plug for libido. Well, there you go. Thank and there you. should be a new federal government or if not if not federal, a state government announcement for every single woman in lockdown should get a libido vibrator. Um, oh, well, listen. We, don't uh, worry about JobKeeper. It's like keep, keep us on the job. <laughs> when we when we went into lockdown five, we had a lockdown love promo code. And then um, after the earthquake, we had uh, like, let's continue to shake things up. Oh. We would say, was that an earthquake or was that my libido yeah. you know, <laughs> giving me a magnitude 10? So uh, uh, there you go. Well, yeah. vibrates actually. I, I, what, it, what, it, but what it does speak to on a more serious, I'm, I'm not going to continue on the orgasm vibrator story, but. You, you were talking about the importance of women investing in business through mm. through their own experience, through a different um, lens and different priorities and different values. And I think this is a perfect example. So yeah. and, uh, and I I'll might just, not have invested, but I kind of have. Yeah, you're you're an owner. <laughs> and I'll just I'll just let everyone know. Libido is run. Um, our CEO and founder Rachel Baker is a young, incredibly incredible entrepreneur. Um, so Libido is a, a woman-owned business, and um, you know she, as you know, a young woman coming into her sexuality, 
looked around and said, first of all, how come no one has talked to me about sex in, ter- in terms of pleasure and my own pleasure? It's always been about P in V situation. And then when she wanted to explore it, it was these kind of like seedy sex shops where she didn't feel like that was her place and toys that didn't look like anything she wanted anyone to accidentally find. So the origin story of libido very much comes from all of these things that we discussed, which is sexual health and wellness, not being part of a conversation, pleasure, not being part of the, what we are taught about sex and then toys and tools, not being beautiful and functional like the other things in our life. Yeah. Maybe some of that is because sex has been uh, defined, uh, mainly by men. So if we look at porn culture, it's all about penetrative sex or it's dominating or the narratives that young women are sold around sex uh, uh, bend over and take it a lot of the time. I know this from my work with Girl World and also through a book that we've got coming out called You Are Not Your Face, written by girls for girls about the tricky path from teenage to adulthood. And a lot of that is about sexual awakening, sexual discovery, discovery of self and then discovery of others, whoever or wherever that is. And um, I think some of the real themes that were coming up were around this still quite subjugated and um, distorted view of what sex is that these, you know, the next generation have still got. And and then that is about opening out those conversations to say, you have permission to explore what's down there, get a mirror, you know, have a go, whatever these young girls and boys clearly, you know, are more likely to go there. But I think it's really important. And certainly as a mother of four daughters, we have very open conversations about uh, what sex is, that sex sex can be for pleasure, as you're saying, not just to procreate. Um, and and to make it real, this female alive sexuality that is as vital as a, as male sexuality, mm. and it's part of a healthy a healthy life, right? That it is part mm-hmm. of health and wellness. Yeah. So it, exactly, yeah. exactly. Tell us, Rach, what what's next for you? However, that question is meaningful for you. Wow, what's next? Well, listen. Flying Fox is a new baby of mine that was just birthed officially uh, in the middle of this year. And so, boy, I mean, I think Kylie and I are just so excited when we know how many different directions it can go in. Um, And we've just been so overwhelmed and um, humbled by the incredible response we've had from people wanting to invest with us, incredible founders that we get to meet and put fuel on their fire and be part of their journey. Um, and just right now, the uh, just the the space is hot, and um, it's a very exciting. I always say it's never been a better time to invest in startups, and like every single day, it gets to be more and more true. <laughs> um, and so, I think professionally, we have a very very exciting road ahead. And what's really exciting about it is not just how much potential and how much success I think we'll have. I think what's really exciting is that we're going to do it on our own terms. And we have called each other out. We have a very beautiful partnership. And we've called each other out a few times when we have defaulted to behaviors that we realize we have been trying to escape. Right. So even with the launch, we were so we're going to do that in April. We had this whole like PR craziness lined up for our launch in April. And we were so busy. We had so many deals on the go and it was intense and, you know, like lockdown. And I was like, we were traveling. It was it was really crazy. And Kylie admitted to me, she's like, I am so stressed out. And I said, well, then why are we launching? And she's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, we're in charge. We we are. This is us creating the life that we want because we couldn't find it 
somewhere else. Mm. How, how so, are you complicit in the conditions you create yeah. for yourself? And so we just constantly call each other out on that when we find ourselves. Listen, it doesn't mean that we're completely stress free. Like, I think, you know, Mads, we're pretty high octane. We operate at a very high level. We hold ourselves to incredibly high standards. But sometimes these are self-inflicted wounds. And when we can identify that it's an unnecessary self-inflicted wound, then we call ourselves out and we make sure we don't do it again. And. I think that that is what feels so exciting is that we will be wildly successful. We will be, I think, you know, world-class in what we do. We will create new things that the early stage investment world has never seen before, but we're going to do it on our own terms. We're going to have levity and joy. We're going to do it at the speed that feels right for us. We're going to bring people along who haven't been invited to the party. We're going to be backing founders that have been underestimated and overlooked. Uh, And so that's what I'm most excited about. Amen, sister. That sounds good. And I'm pumped to be uh, a small part, on a small part of that journey with you. Um, talking of investing, uh, second last question, what is the next thing you are going to invest in for yourself? I love Peloton bikes. So I just bought a Peloton bike to arrive at my house here. Um, does that, that doesn't count. But what the Peloton represents is me making time for myself making time for my physical health, making time for my mental health and having fun. So when I go on a bike ride and I used to do soul cycle in America, I love it. I'm like a little, not quite ready to get in a studio with COVID, not quite ready until my kids are vaccinated. But when I went into a soul cycle studio, I got to shed all of the armor that I wear in the outside world. And that's what this black that I wear is armor. It looks black, but it's silver plated. I don't let myself throw my arms up when I dance. You know, my my arms stay low and I don't know. I I just have like a certain amount of composure. I, I mean, I'm very, I'm a very open and honest person, but I still have pieces of armor. And when I go into Soul Cycle, there's something about like the lights are low and I don't know a soul in there. And it's like cheesy music. And like you get your towel up and you're hooping and hollering and you're dancing on a bike and you all look stupid. And I just let myself be free. And so what Peloton represents to me is it's one hour where I'm saying, you are worth this. You are worth all the other things you can do in this hour. Instead, you are worth doing you. Two, it's a moment where I'm not thinking about work. And then three, I'm letting myself be silly and stupid. And I sing along. I did like a, a Disney sing along ride the other day. And I'm like singing a whole new world and little mermaid under the sea. And I can just have levity and joy. And so for me, that is the investment that I make in myself. We wish you levity, joy, abundant self-worth, uh, discovery, success, quiet moments, walking in the forest. And next time we see you, I want to see you throwing up your arms when you dance. <laughs> and maybe not wearing black. <laughs> but uh, the, the food for thought, we do like to end, apart from giving uh, clothing advice and fashion tips to our guests, we like to end this pod with the same question, Rach, and that's acknowledging the complexities and the hardships and the foibles of being human. Who do you reckon is doing human well? I mean, I mentioned her already, but I have just become such a fan and admirer of Glennon Doyle. And I remember first seeing a video recording of her years ago when she was on like an Oprah thing. 
And this is back when she was like a Christian mommy blogger. And I was like, who is this little blonde Christian mommy trying to tell me anything about the world? I totally prejudged her. And she just like had me on my knees by the end of her talk. She understands the human condition and talks about humaning in a way that makes so much sense to me that it allows me to recognize my own humanity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then I read Untamed. I listened to her podcast and I just, I, I'm constantly, I'm just so impressed by her personal story, how she went from being a Christian mommy blogger to now being in a same-sex marriage, the journey she must have been on. You know, she always says, um, you know, disappoint everyone before you disappoint yourself, which is like something like, ah, I don't know when I'll get there. But I am just I'm so impressed and proud and uh, like unbelievably in awe of her ability to choose herself over and over and over again. And she is such a role model for me. Um, she asks the questions that allow me to search inside myself and she, you know, I look up to her as, you know, someone who continues to choose herself over and over and over again. You know, she's also like fun and introverted like me and hates people, loves humanity kind of thing. Um, yeah, she's just she's an incredible, an incredible role model, I think, for lots of women and girls who need to be reminded that they are worthy of mm-hmm. being cho- being chosen by themselves. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.